1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good
2: afternoon. My name is Bede Haynes. Welcome to the Australian and New Zealand channels of the New Books Network. This afternoon, we are speaking with Bronwyn Adcock. Bronwyn has written a new book called Karawan, the story of a fire and a community during Australia's worst summer. And for those of us in Australia, we will know no doubt what that means. The Bushfires, I think, 2019, 2020, that summer. I hope Bronwyn nods when I say that. It's not the, the correct year. Yes, he is. Good. And Bronwyn is an award-winning Australian journalist. She has worked for, has worked as a radio and current affairs reporter for the ABC, a video journalist for SBS Dateline, and a writer for The Monthly. And this new book is published by Black Inc. Good afternoon, Bronwyn.
3: Hi, Bede. How are you?
2: Good, well, thank you. Now, I read your book. It was very interesting. It, remind, it brought me back to I live in Sydney, and a, a time when it was every Australian I think will remember when it, when well half of the state was almost on fire, really. But you were much closer to events. Can you give us a background into how you what how you came to write this book, and why you wrote this book?
3: Yeah, so it actually, for me, it started uh, in kind of towards the end of 2019. Uh, So as you correctly said in your introduction, I'm a journalist, I'm a freelance journalist. And in around kind of October of 2019, I'd become, well, like lots of people, I was aware that the bushfire season had started a couple of months earlier on the north coast of New South Wales. Uh, and it was really bad. People were already talking about it being, you know, the, the worst fire season that Australia had ever seen. And so, look, I'd been interested in the topic for a while and I, I thought I, I wanted to write about what was happening. I thought this is this is going to be huge. Fire scientists are saying it's huge. Um, so I successfully pitched the story to a magazine, to the monthly magazine, uh, and so I started working on a feature article for them about the bushfire season. But my focus was very much the north coast of New South Wales. Um, So I was kind of in in the middle of that, I guess, when uh, one afternoon towards the end of November, uh, there was a, well, the night before, there was a dry lightning storm uh, to the northwest of, southwest, sorry, of where I live on the south coast of New South Wales, uh, and a fire started in a remote forest. Uh, And it took uh, about a week to get to us, but eventually... Uh, the fire did get to us and it, it became the Currawan fire, this fire that ended up going for two months. Uh, so I found, found myself in a situation where uh, <laughs> we were, yeah, our property was pretty much destroyed by a fire and I was living in a fire zone for the next two months. So uh, out of that, I, my feature article kind of morphed, I guess, into a more personal account of the fire season and what had happened. Uh, and that is what the book came out of. So the the, art, the art, article kind of came out, I think, at, in February twenty twenty, um, and not long after that, I I started turning it into a book.
2: Mm. With the book itself, one thing I noticed when I was reading is, here is a book about a bushfire, and I thought this will be full of of metaphor and and that type of thing. But it occurred to me it wasn't until the very sort of toward the end that any sense of metaphor or real reflection came in. It was just seemed just to be people exposed to a situation having to survive. It it was almost as though the story was it it was the story was was bigger than any for these people was bigger than any description of it could be. Is that is that an accurate reflection? Do you think?
3: Yeah, it was, and, and that is when I was writing the book, that was kind of my intention. So um, one of my kind of driving purposes in deciding to go ahead and, and write the book was that I wanted people who didn't go through it to kind of to live it basically. I, I wanted people, you know, it, it was such a profound experience. You know, it, it wasn't one day of a fire. It was two months of this prolonged catastrophe uh, and it affected uh, our lives in so many ways uh, you know it wasn't just the fire it was um, you know mobile communications going out power going out living with roadblocks living with the uncertainty of not knowing whose house is burnt down next and who survived um, and it, it was a re- everyone who went through it found it a really profound experience and what I wanted to convey to the reader was what it was like so when i wrote the book the idea was to kind of drop back into that experience so i was able to actually obviously in the research when i was putting the book together go back and re-examine a lot of the events that happened and, and get some more sense and actually draw the picture of what happened because you, when you're in the middle of it you don't really know what's going on like it's really confusing so i was able to with the book uh, in my research kind of track the fire literally day by day track its path figure out why decisions were made to fight it in a certain way figure out what mistakes were made, but when I actually got to the writing process, uh, I just wanted to drop myself and the reader like back into that moment, back into that, you know, what it's like to, to live the rawness of living in that.
2: Yes. Could you describe the country where the fire took place? It's broadly what's known as the south coast of New South Wales and from my Having travelled through there over the years, it doesn't seem to me to be a place that would necessarily be prone to bushfire. It's very green. It has a lot of sort of subtropical rainforest in parts and things like that. Could it, so, was the first of all was the bushfire unexpected in this area, or a bushfire of this severity? And then, how would you actually describe this country before the bushfire, and the, the way people thought about bushfires?
3: I think you're right. It was unexpected. Whether we should have expected it is another question. Um, Look, there have been bushfires in the past in the south coast, nothing ever of this severity, not even close. Um, There are historical records of really big fires, like there was one I think around 1939, another one earlier in the century. Uh, But in most people's modern memory, I guess, nothing of this scale. But, you know, a part of that, though, that, that I, I think that we have a problem generally in Australia where we do live with a, a certain obliviousness to the land. So the, the south coast, we have all these little coastal villages uh, that are growing all the time. You know, they start with little coastal settlements, you know, right on the ocean front or around an estuary. But over decades they, they grow and expand, subdivisions kind of creep back towards the bush. And we see ourselves very much as a coastal-facing society. So we we love the beach. We we think of ourselves as coastal dwellers. But the thing is, up the west of all of it is this kind of great big hinterland of forests, of mountains, uh, that is is basically the source of fire and what was happening on the south coast, well, indeed, all of southeastern Australia in the years leading up to it. Was that land was drying out, and it was absolutely tinder dry. So, you know, forests were were full of um, tree, often trees dying where they were standing because it was so dry. So, basically, this kind of big band of, of forest running parallel to the coast was just yeah ready to burn. Basically,
2: the book has a few focus points. One of them are the root are the um volunteer firefighters the rural fire service and how they dealt with this situation there was an issue about what's called backburning, and there's this idea of um well, one question i want to ask you first of all is we, we have the rural fire service from reading your book it doesn't actually seem that they're fighting the fire as in, instead of they're trying to just divert the fire or stop the fire crossing a point how would you describe what the Rural Fire Service does and how it comes to have people in it? How does it operate?
3: Yeah, so the the RFS is uh, the bulk of the firefighting force, the volunteers. So the RFS is a professional organisation, right? But the way it works is that the professional side, so the people who who run the fires and manage the fires and have a paid job, they don't fight fires. So that so they plan resources, logistics. But basically, the only people who hold a hose, are the volunteers. So little towns and communities have their own brigade and that brigade is made up of volunteers, whoever wants to sign up, and they're the ones who actually go out and fight the fire. And they're all volunteers, even the captain, Like the captain of a brigade, which is an incredible responsibility, uh, not just time-wise, but, I mean, they're, they're taking in their hands the lives of all the men and women who are volunteering with them. It's an incredible role. They're all volunteers as well and yeah like what happened on a fire of of the scale that we saw this season is that a lot of the time the best they could do was maybe try and steer it (laughs) maybe try and put in backburn to stop it um you know fall back and try and defend whatever houses they could but really they weren't in a one of the fires all the fires were so ferocious they were not stoppable by what by by the resources or, or, or what these brigades had but you know, once you've got a full barrelling forest fire, uh, you know, a, a brigade, the fire truck with volunteers and a fire hose, there's not much they can do.
2: Yes. Could you describe what a backburn is and how it's meant to operate?
3: Yeah, okay. So a backburn is, it's one of the most traditional firefighting tools there is. It's, you know, the, it's it's basically fighting fire with fire. So the idea is that you have... Um, a fire front moving in a direction so just say it's heading north Uh, and and fire needs fuel it it needs something to eat it's got to consume something to keep going so the idea is is that in front of it in the direction uh, direction it's going firefighters put in a line a controlled burn uh, and they will burn a, a, a hopefully a nice deep line in front of the fire so by the time the fire gets to that line there's nothing left for it to consume so it will either slow down or ideally it will stop um, and it, yeah it's, it's a very traditional technique it's not uh, generally not controversial uh, but what happened this season on a really large scale is that it didn't work as well as it used to so not only did it not work and that the fires ran straight over top of these backburns but also um, back some of the backburns got away uh, and they caused new fires that caused new destruction. Um, basically, in a very simple explanation, is that the land was too dry. So, um, you know, with the environment changing, with, the, with, the, with warming happening and, and more fire weather conditions, backburning has kind of changed, and this was the first, Black Summer was the first time we realised that, that it's no longer this kind of reliable tool. It's It's inherently way more risky than it used to be.
2: Yes. The and a backburn creates a break between, so the fire would would hit the line where it's been burnt, and then it can't progress further. Is that, is that the basic idea? And a road, there's a couple of in this in your book. There's two things that, that I I found interesting was there's a river called the Clyde River, which is near the King's Highway, and it seems to travel north south, which is where Currawan is, the state forest, and the fire got across that river. Is So the river itself, I don't know how wide the river is, but I would have thought a river is a quite a difficult thing for a fire to cross.
3: Yeah, well, again, I mean, that was another of the surprises, I guess, of the fire season. I mean, what happened is it fires, so not just the and fire, which I wrote about, but lots of fires, but the hallmark of this season is that fires didn't behave like we, as in, as in you know, firefighters and the community they didn't behave like we expected expected them to. They behaved differently. And so the example you gave is correct. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, the Clyde River is a nice wide river uh, and it was in the early days of the and fire used as a containment line. So instead of doing a backburn, you rely on the river to stop the fire. Uh, But the fire leapt straight over the top uh, and that happened time and time again with other rivers, with other backburns. Uh, these fires just proved, um, yeah, incredibly powerful. And, and, you know, spotting ahead of the fire front was a really big feature of the fire season as well and that's when basically a fire gets a certain amount of energy, it gets a good gallop up and it sends out an ember, you know, upwards of 5, 10 kilometres ahead of the fire front where it's going and that starts a completely new fire. So, you know, you can have multiple fires growing out of one fire.
2: The book focuses on a few, some people. From time to time, you have chapters that focus in on in, individuals and bring the story from the from the from the macro level down to the micro level. Um, one feature I enjoyed about the book was it wasn't until I got to the end when you just commented that some people didn't want their names used, so you just you changed their names. And I thought, Ah, oh, thank goodness you didn't. Didn't involve that idea of writing every single time. Their name is being withheld. So the story just flowed, and I thought that was, I thought that was very good. Um, in any case, there's a person called I'll just I'll pick one: Ray Ray Harvey. And Ray, I think, was the person who had an animal shelter. And you told the story about how the fire impacted impacted that shelter in that area. And Ray Harvey, how did you select these individuals? And were there particular reasons why, I imagine when you wrote the work, you may have interviewed a lot more and in the final work you put in some where you featured some more than others. What were you trying to show with, and could you tell Ray's story and then what you were trying to show with that to the reader?
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Beat. I did interview and collect way more stories than I could have used, Um, you know, and it's the writer's dilemma is kind of discarding, beautiful stories because every story was wonderful. I didn't hear a story that wasn't incredible and compelling, but um, ultimately you've got to make choices and you have to kind of, well, I wanted to keep the story moving along. I was trying to track the path of this fire. So I was, you know, the, the, the structure of the book is structured around the, the, the path of the fire, so which community it went to next and whose house did it hit next. So that's what I was following. Uh, so ray is a woman she she hers was an extraordinary uh story and look there were lots of reasons i included her story but I, i'll tell you in brief what happened to her so she lives uh on uh the banks of a of the river a little bit further south of where i live uh and she's a wildlife carer and she's got an interesting story she's been in the area for about five years she was originally from melbourne she was a been in the music industry for most of her life very successful. Uh, rock band manager Uh, but she's got an incredible passion for wildlife in particular kangaroos Uh, she's very very connected to them she takes uh, joeys that have been orphaned and and hand raises them Uh, and she was interesting because I'd actually connected with her earlier in the fire season so when the property when the fire first hit uh, my property um, all the wildlife in my area was completely obliterated it was dead quiet there was nothing there was nothing living and then I'd heard uh, on the grapevine, or was, was probably on Facebook, which is <laughs> the version of the grapevine, uh, about a wildlife carer uh, called Ray Harvey further south, who was in an area that wasn't impacted by the fire, and she was fundraising and distributing wildlife food so that we could set up uh, these stations on our properties to see, to basically feed and water any animals that were left alive. So I'd connected with her then uh, and then about a month later I heard again on the grapevine that the fire had actually obliterated her house and her property and her animals. Uh, so when I went back to w- w- researching and writing a story, I did want to, I guess because I'd had that connection with her um, and the book is very much about kind of the connections in communities and the way that, um, you know, when something like this happens to a community, it affects you and your immediate family but there's all these other networks you have and the fire was so broad-reaching it actually kind of reached its fingers into all my networks, it felt like. Um, so I, I tracked down Ray to find her story. So she was at home. So the fire started on 27 of November 2019. Uh, didn't get her to the 31st of December, so it was over a month. Uh, she knew that it had come close to her and she was you know, it had been getting prepared, uh, but the forecast was basically saying that it would be New Year's Day the fire could come to her area, and it was four a.m. in the morning when she got woken to a banging on her door, and it was her neighbour basically saying, "It's here now, it's on us." Uh, and by the time she got out of bed and got out of si- outside, the fire was coming. There was absolutely no hope of escaping by road. Um, and she, she had a, a friend staying with her. They did what they could for a couple of hours, but then basically they got chased down to the river's edge uh, and waded into the water. She was holding her cat above her head and basically preparing for her own death. So the huge forest fire kind of crowning above the canopies of the trees coming at her. Uh, And then as she described it, through the the smoke and the fire, she kind of sees this little silver tinny coming along the river and it's a neighbour on the boat and he basically pulls her and the friend and the cat into the boat Uh, and as they pull out into the river they turn around and both of them watch their houses explode. Uh, And then they motor down river. Um, Basically the fire follows them because the fire then rushes down towards the coast to the big town of Batemans Bay so a couple of hours later when Ray gets to Batemans Bay, she joins kind of many thousands and thousands of people all pushing into evacuation centres, uh, trying to find somewhere safe to go. Uh, she's pretty frightened by this stage. So she doesn't go to the evacuation centre because she thinks it doesn't look safe. So she ends up kind of going into the, the centre of Batemans Bay, which is a you know pretty big south coast town and it's deserted by now and she finds an empty shopping centre with a shut-up woolies and basically sets up on the floor with her and a friend and a whole lot of abandoned shopping trolleys and just takes, yeah, takes shelter on the floor for the day.
2: Speaking of Bateman's I, I think in the parts of the book, you mentioned that there are lots of tourists still in the area and part of the, one of the issues was evacuating tourists for the area around that time of year. Um, I wonder now what your thoughts are on this. Now that we've had lockdowns for coronavirus and it seems pretty easy now just to say to people you stay right where you are don't go anywhere if the next time there are events like this the risk of this that would those sort of orders would start being made or they should be made what, what are your thoughts on that i mean it does affect people's livelihoods that's a tourist area as well down down the south coast
3: uh Bede, i think that's a really good point that you make and, I, and it's i've thought it as well it's funny since since the fires and since we've kind of gone through this whole pandemic, a whole lot of stuff which would have seemed completely unthinkable, like telling people they can't go on holidays or they can't leave their homes. So it seemed insane. But you're right, it is something now that we have accepted. Um, And, yeah, during the fires, that probably should have happened a lot earlier. It it was actually, uh, yeah, it was insane. So basically the south coast was in the middle of, a, a massive fire. It, it was an ongoing fire. Um, it had been going for quite some time. It wasn't out. It wasn't expected to go out. And, yes, we are a tourist area, and but people just flooded in, like not just a couple but tens of thousands of tourists. So when the fires got really bad around uh, New Year's Eve, and it basically it was nearly from the Victorian border all the way up to Nara, which is about, I think, 170 kilometres of coastline, there wasn't much coastline that wasn't under threat uh, and there were many tens of thousands of tourists all along that coastline. Um, the fact that we didn't have fatalities on a massive scale uh, is extraordinary. Um, but what happened is that you had little coastal caravan parks like Lake Conjola is a classic one, which is um, a town just north of where I live. So, you know, there's, there's a big inlet that goes right down to the beach. Uh, There's a residential area called Conjola Park which was hit by the fire first and about a third of the town was destroyed. Uh, But right down at the lake's edge there's another little village called Lake Conjola and it had something like 5,000 tourists in there who were completely trapped by the fire. So they couldn't get out by road or by sea at all. They were huddled on the water's edge. Um, So the fire tore through Conjola Park. Uh, It took three lives. It destroyed, you know, around a third of that village and it completely surrounded Lake Conjola, where you had five thousand people in tents and caravans, but it didn't actually get to the water's edge, uh, which is very fortunate. But you look at that and just think, yeah, it was an insanity. The, the forecast was always going to be that it was an exceedingly dangerous day. The weather conditions were set from Christmas time. Uh, fire authorities were very clearly saying New Year's Eve is going to be exceptionally dangerous, uh, and yeah, people. Um, kept on with our holiday plans but you know as you pointed out it is uh it is a mainstay of the local economy and I think in fairness it is worth pointing out as I did in the book that uh, many local operators encourage tourists to come you know they said look it's fine come down you know yep no no problems at all
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Um, another
2: uh, this is just a, a nice touch I found in the book. There are Sarah and Paul Martin, Phil sorry Martin, who own a, a pub um, at Nigeria, I think it is Neriga. and the and it's such a human reaction that, that then the fire happens. The fire's in the area, and then people turn up to give them gifts and a lot of the gifts, it's around Christmas and they get a lot of Christmas toys and there were no children there anymore. they are all they've all moved away. Um and it's sort of funny that uh, I like the idea that it sort of shows how it's not only when the people give gifts, because what else do you give at Christmas time but toys, but Sarah keeps them. She doesn't sort of say we don't need these taken somewhere else. She actually respects the people turning up with gifts and thinks, Oh well I'll give them lots of grandparents around here. They'll want presents, we'll give them to them. I just thought it was a nice um there's, there's a lot of those nice sort of touches you've put into the book where people just do th- nice things for each other and another one's where some us uh, the lady i forget her name she's heard there's people looking for her and they've said and she's annoyed because they've referred to her as being old
3: yeah yeah and look you're you know that is a beautiful that's why i put it in there that anecdote about um this woman from who was kind of the publican in this village which what you know lots of people lost their homes and yeah she received this gift of all these children's toys and thought no no we don't need them and then she thought hold on there's all these grandparents that have lost their homes um and I included that story one because uh you know Sarah is a really thoughtful lovely woman but you know I think that what I'm trying to show a lot as well is you know the magnitude of losses and the intricacies of loss so when we hear for example on the news that oh someone's lost their house or the house burnt down I mean there's a million side effects of that, and that's what I saw in my own community and, and as I wrote the book. And uh, there can be little things or there can be big things, but, yeah, for a grandparent who has lost their house and their house is burnt down, yes, that's awful, they've lost their house. But, yeah, the fact they don't have a gift to give to their grandkids at Christmas is also, it's another loss. Um, and every, every story, every person who's been through something has thousands of those things happening to them.
2: Yes, and another group that gets focused on, although not very flatteringly, are the Australian politicians. I think um, it's it, I remember at the time, but when I read this book, it struck me again as how unusual it seemed that the Australian Prime Minister was in Hawaii when a lot of this was happening. It just seems very um, well, very unknowledgeable of what's happening in 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 the in their own country. And then later on, you refer in the book that finally, um. There's going to be some increased funding for the Australian aerial firefighting capacity because that—that was something that the firefighters wanted, and they offer some money to that. But then you make the sort of comment that, and and but they also made sure that they had a a lovely promotional video with a jingle on the on the internet just to let everyone know they've they've taken this great step. It seemed very um, it seemed very remote from the situation. Is that how? people they probably still feel that way I don't know how, how how did the people feel
3: yeah that that was a really it, it did feel incredibly remote and, and I felt it you know like it, it's not uncommon to hear people talk about oh politicians don't know what's going on on the ground but I've never experienced it in such a, a an extreme way where we were living with this week in week out horror really and you know, I, like I, I remember even in the first week of the on fire where, you know, the, the fire ripped through our area and, you know, I had kind of friends and neighbours and people running for their lives, uh, calling triple zero and not getting help, being told there was no fire trucks, there were no resources, like basically lots of people were battling on their own. And then at the end of that week, switching on the telly and seeing a government minister say, "No, no, we're well resourced. We've planned for this season. We don't, we don't need anything else. Everything's under control," um, and, and that continued through the season. So, you know, yeah, hearing the prime minister had gone to Hawaii was just uh, bizarre. And you know, likewise the, you know, the chirpy New Year's messages he put out, kind of basically, you know, on, on New Year's Day saying. You know, what a great nation we live in and it's the best place in the world to bring up children. And, you know, we'd had children kind of sucking in bushfire smoke for the last 24 hours. You know, kids I knew had lost everything. You know, uh, they knew people who died. They had friends lose their homes. It was, you know, kids kind of camped on beaches. Um and look, you know, you may agree or disagree with the statement that we live in the best nation on earth and it's a great place to raise kids, but it was just there was this lived reality that we were going through and then there was these kind of statements coming out from politicians and and there was no, (laughs) there didn't seem to be much meeting between them. Like we were in a completely, we were in a different reality, it felt like. It felt like we were in a a different world. Um, And again, you know, that's what I was trying to, convey in the book why I wanted to write that book again, coming back to that idea of wanting to kind of drop people into that world and give the reader the experience of, you know, this this is what it actually was, this is what it felt like and smelt like and looked like and this is what was going on in that world.
2: Now the book as the book creeps on, we eventually get to a section in the end, chapter thirteen, it's called Saturday's Subtly buster. And it seems I'm not sure if this is intentional or it just came across this way or I'm just reading too much into this, but this is when the fire has been going on for 40 days and it's just fatigue setting in thought of it 40 days. And I'm, I'm wondering first, and then later on in that chapter, someone's, you tell the story of someone's house being spared. There's something happens at the last minute and the house is spared. And the person says, Oh, um, God must've intervened for me. I think, you know, it's wonderful. And I, I just wonder if the um, the, for, the forty days reminded me of the forty days and forty nights. Of, I don't know. These are sort of bib, these, are, these are the biblical references coming through in some direct or indirect way. It was like the people had just got to the end of this, and they thought this has been going on for just forever. It's just got to end. And now that the, it's almost as though now the people's psychology starts ticking when they realize they're just getting fed up. It just has their breaking point. It's like the whole world's about to end. Is that how it felt?
3: Uh, it yeah, it totally did. Like in that uh, chapter, which was set on um, Saturday, 4th of January, 2020, yeah, as you said, day 40, I hadn't quite realised the biblical reference. <laughs> um, but look, I, I mean, I, lots of people, including myself, were completely over it by that time. And, you know, I write in the book um, about that day. So for me, it was day 40. Uh, we were in our second lot of temporary accommodation Uh, we were still running quite regularly from the fires Um, you know that day was another emergency day where people I loved were in danger phones were dropping out I was in kind of this village where we were staying near the water so fairly safe uh, with another three families who'd evacuated with us and then we got the emergency alert on the phone uh, saying kind of, you know, seek shelter as the fire approaches. And I had my original boxes that I'd packed up kind of five weeks earlier when I'd done my first evacuation. Uh, that was still there. And this friend that was kind of evacuating with me this day on the Saturday 4th, she kind of gently said to me, like, do you, do you think you should put your boxes in the car? We, we might be ready to go again. Uh, and I just said, no, I, I can't, I, I can't. And I don't remember if I actually verbalised it or it was all going on in my head, but I was I was at the end and I was kind of making these kind of weird, twisted, and bargains in my head where I was just thinking, let it burn, like let the house burn, let my stuff burn. I don't care as long as it's over. Like I, I, will, I will pay anything. You can take everything I own, but it just has to be done. Like, I, yeah, I was so so exhausted and 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 I think everyone was by that point you know the volunteer firefighters had been going you know day in day out, you know like it wasn't all for me a lot of the time it was just inconvenience, but um volunteer firefighters had been literally out on the trucks you know nearly every day or at least every other day
2: yeah, and what was it like in these towns where you had these these sort of shelters where people can go and stay? Um, and a reference that comes up a lot in the book is that these people have these diets of, of sausage sandwiches for day in, day out. What well, it must have just been so so. Is it is it right? There's people in these shelters. They don't know if their house is destroyed, or they may know it's destroyed. They imagine they've got zero privacy. They don't know how long this fire is going to go on for. It, how? What was the atmosphere like in those places?
3: yeah it's um well it depends on what what kind of the fire was doing but you know it is amazing to see how so much of our disaster response relies on extraordinary community goodwill and volunteers basically so yes we have some systems and processes in place but so the evacuation center nearest to me in the town of Ardalla, for example so it's normally a library and civic center um, and it is a designated uh it's not an evacuation center i think they call it a safe place where where you're meant to go but it's not meant to be for overnight accommodation but because the fires were so extreme because there were so many tourists around who lost their you know there, there were thousands of tourists who were staying in caravan parks that had to be evacuated and suddenly they had nowhere to go but they couldn't get back to sydney or canberra because the roads were blocked so these evacuation centers were just basically making it up as they went so you know i write about the the one in aladala like when the power went they had no system no generator no way of 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 getting power so there was a circus in town all right so again this is it's tourist season so the the circus is in town uh so the circus folk come and light up the building with their circus lights um but there's no bedding because they're not set up so basically You know the the centre manager, who's a a local woman, just starts putting out calls on her local on her Facebook pages. So locals who are not in the direct fire zone start bringing in bedding. You know they they need more light. So someone gets the the phone number of the local camping shop owner and says, "Can you open up and can we get camping lights?" So it's this real ad hoc everyone chipping in. I mean, at one point in Aladala, they opened up to billets. They actually ran out of room to physically put bodies to sleep in the evacuation centre so a call went out to um, the community if your house is in a safe place and you can billet someone uh, can they come and sleep at your house uh, and, and further south a lot of that happened like I write about the village of Malua Bay so it actually came under direct fire attack on New Year's Eve quite early in the morning um, and again by the time the fire came in to the village the surrounding village there was, no, there was no escape other than the beach. So thousands of people just had to flee to the beach. Um, and basically the surf club and the local, the surf club volunteers just took it upon themselves to take charge. So they had a situation where you have thousands of people on foot and cars all coming into an area. So they just immediately jump into traffic control. Uh, they've got a limited, initially they got some people in the um surf club so there's a lot of smoke so it was triage it was like right old people maybe young babies into the surf club everyone else outside uh but then the fire actually started to come into the reserve where the surf club was so they had to say to everyone right get out on the you need to go to the water now uh so they would you know they were doing things like finding chucks wipers and wetting them and giving them to elderly people so they could breathe and then even once a fire front passed you've got thousands of people who need feeding and <laughs> and and water. Um, so again, they start kind of going through town, and you know, getting up barbecues, finding food. Um, yeah, so a lot a lot of it is just this incredible uh, ad hoc uh, work. And yeah, a lot a lot of it is done by volunteers. And it does, you know, a lot of it does involve uh, sausage sandwiches, which is something that kind of came up time and time again. Uh, you know, everyone who was ever fed was very grateful. Uh, but yeah, there was always the commentary that, that yeah, there was a lot of sausages.
2: Points, well, a couple of points when the fire eventually ends throughout the. Um, but the first thing I want to mention is in the in the book there is a lot of destruction. Houses, are, houses are destroyed, and that must just be one of the most desolating things that can happen to a person. You're just your whole house is just destroyed. You have to run, and it's gone. I imagine there's lots of pets that are killed, lots of favourite trees, all sorts of things are just destroyed. It, you don't really focus on that in the book. It's, um, it, uh, I imagine there could have been a lot of tear-jerking stories about the beloved Dax that died in the fire, that type of thing. There's some, you mentioned in some places it didn't seem to be the main, the main focus, like the adds ads, the person feeding the koala out of the water bottle. Um, was there was a reason for that?
3: Uh, basically, because the the story, my narrative, didn't really spend a lot of time in the aftermath. So I was basically in the real time moment of the fire going through. So if I if I'd written more about the year or two afterwards, there would have been um, a lot more about, I guess, the specific loss. Uh, so I was more about the experience of actually living through the fire. I did write, I think, towards the end about some of the more, um, well, for me they were unexpected observations about different types of loss. So, um, you know, like I, I wrote about how a lot of bushfire survivors and I focused a fair bit on conjola as one example, um, what it's like to live amongst the ruin and the destruction uh, and the way it in impacts your psychology. So I spoke to one woman who just talked about, uh, you know, what happens after the fires. Is that lots of people come looking. So people, sightseers come looking. Um, the media come, of course, and they, for a couple of days, and then once the media goes, then you just get general curious people driving through. Uh, and she talked to me a lot about how how invaded she felt and how vulnerable and, and kind of scared she felt and. Um, You know, there's a lot of, uh, I did try and talk about the trauma, I think, which is for me, it's one of the most um, noticeable things about the aftermath of the fire and that, you know, the physical losses of people's property is enormous and that just goes on and on and on for people kind of, you know, the constant remembering of the physical things they've lost. But uh, the mental trauma of it is still, uh, is very intense after the fire and and like it's still very pronounced around this area now, like we're coming up for two years. Um, and it's still very, very raw experience for lots of people.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that it must be that must um, be true. And another nice Im- image that you put into your book about the impact of the fire had. I think when you talk about. I think it was might even been you when you drive up to Sydney. There was a house that you traditionally saw that was burnt down, and it was like this market that has been there your whole life. You suddenly realise, gosh, this this world isn't as stable as we all think
3: yeah totally it's it's um it, it was a really i mean the, the fire itself was very traumatic um but living in a changed environment and changed landscape afterwards uh that you can never really get away from uh yeah is really disconcerting and i you know i wrote about uh, the changes to the environment, how that feels like the the absence of any wildlife or birds or animals or anything for at least the first year, the, that silence was quite overwhelming. You know, the, the prevalence of black, of black trees absolutely everywhere. You know, the, the LGA that I live in, I think something like 90% of it was burnt. So, uh, look, it's, it's greened up a bit now, quite beautifully, but uh, throughout most of 2020, it was impossible every single day to not come into contact with, sorry, every single day you were coming into contact with some evidence of of things being burned. Um, And, and yeah, and the loss of of houses and places and and these markers. You know, you're right, I did write about that little farmhouse that had been there since I was a child. And, you know, it it was just a marker, it was a mental marker for me when I was on the road uh, you know, this was the beginning beginning of kind of coming home or, or as I was leaving home this little house and, yeah, to see it gone was, it, it was, yeah, it kind of feels like the, the, the world shifted underneath your feet a little bit.
2: Mm, is there a sense in the area in the district that this will happen again?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, people are... Um, I mean, I think people even last summer, even though we had a fairly mild summer, were pretty twitchy, you know, uh, pretty nervy. And I think that will probably be the case most summers. Um, look, I, yeah, I don't, I think most people understand now that it will happen again, uh, perhaps not in exactly the same way. Uh, and if not happen to our community, it will happen somewhere else. But the, yeah, the, the, the 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 science that, that says that bushfires are going to become more extreme and will happen closer together is very very solid, uh, and I, I think most people most people realise that 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 is you know that is the way of the future.
2: Have local councils and things like that in the area? Do you know that if they've changed any requirements for when you build what you have to have in place to help preserve buildings against bushfires?
3: I don't know if they have changed immediately after the fires but uh, they're pretty, um, there are a lot of requirements uh, and and so, so there should be but I guess um, one of the perverse things that is happening is that that's made it harder for a lot of bushfire survivors. So a lot of people have had the experience of losing uh, their home and maybe it was a home that was built 30 years ago uh, and they were insured for an amount that they thought was the value of their home. Uh, but when they've gone to rebuild, they realise now there's a whole lot of uh, new requirements to make their new home bushfire safe, which increases the cost. Uh, so a lot of people have found themselves either unable to afford to build again or unable to afford to build what they would like to build. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's 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 a big question. But I, I think that, um, you know, we, we do know that a lot of our built environment is is at risk really uh, and there is, you know, that there's a lot that can be done to mitigate that risk. There's no kind of guarantees for any home or village but, you know, as, as a society we'd be mad not to kind of think pretty deeply about how we're going to live with increasing bushfires. Mm.
2: Um, and we'll have to start wrapping up. But what, is there anything else about this work that you would like to, to say?
3: Uh, <laughs> I would like people to read it. I mean, I think. Um, look, I, I I wrote it because it was like my story and the my, story of my community. But I think, but but I did so because yeah, because I wanted to share that experience with other people. And I guess the re- part of the reason I want to share it is that I think it is it's a possibility and it's a future for all of us. Really, I, I don't think um, I don't think it's just exclusive to to my area. I think that we are facing unfortunately a world where we are going to have more natural disasters um and you know even people who live in cities you know perhaps may not be facing bushfires but there will be I mean you know I point out in the book the impact of bushfire smoke on people in cities was pretty huge I think more, more people died of respiratory conditions that summer than from the actual fires um so so it's it's kind of a I don't know if a warning is the right word. The book, but it's an insight into this world that we have unfortunately found ourselves in, um, and lo- yeah, lots more people will experience that, I think. But it's you know, but it's not all bleak. I do. Um, I-, I think that, and you've kind of picked up on a couple of the stories. There are really in the book there are lots of beautiful moments of connection and people helping each other and beauty amongst the horror. And look, I don't know if that is. Particularly Australian, um, but but there is I think there is a lot in there about the beauty of communities and uh, that spirit people have of helping each other and getting stuck in and you know yeah there, there's people there who volunteered not just firefighters but volunteered their entire summer helping other people and doing whatever they could and um, you know that I find a lot of that pretty inspirational. Yeah.
2: As a freelance journalist, what sort of projects or what are you working on next? What's what's happening now in the life of the freelance journalist?
3: <laughs> I'm having a little bit of a rest now. Uh, look, I don't know. I'm um, Look, I'm still very fascinated uh, with fire, with bushfire. I learnt a lot about the science of fire when I was writing. Um, and there's some really interesting work starting to come out now about the fires, kind of scientific papers examining why they behaved the way they did so I'm reading all of that with interest um look I'm actually just um you know over the course of writing I think over the course of the summer when the fires were on and then um writing the book I kind of lost my lifelong habit of reading and so I have a a tower of books on my bedside table which need to be read so that's it's at least for the next kind of month that's my priority is trying to yeah, trying to just do some reading of other people's books.
2: Yeah, well, uh, if you ever got around to writing a book about the the science of bushfires, that would I'd certainly read it. That would be great. The, you do have bits in there about the, the what are they called, the pyrochemical clouds. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, the fire, the fire, firestorms basically. Which um, you know, the Austra- Australia, that Black Summer was record breaking for the entire globe. Like no one had ever seen. The, so the uh, pyrocumulonimbus is basically uh, a storm created by a fire. So it's when, you know, the, the the plume from the fire is so powerful it sends up energy, you know, up into the stratosphere, 15 kilometres up, and creates a thunderstorm uh, that just, so it has lightning, uh, you know, it can have hail, but often it will be kind of embers instead of ice. Uh, and, and they're phenomenally dangerous. And they used to be incredibly rare uh, and over... That summer in Australia, we saw more than anyone had ever seen in the world. Uh, but that, all those records have since been surpassed by the Northern Hemisphere in their fire season that they're just coming out of the end of. So they also saw a run of these events. Um, you know, the, the fascinating thing is a lot is happening uh, in our atmosphere and in our climate and with fire that we don't understand. You know, the, the various, uh, the Royal Commission and the New South Wales inquiry that was held after Black Summer there's quite a few recommendations which are basically saying we need to study this, we, we need to do more research. Uh, we, do, we don't understand what is happening in our world and why, you know, fire. You know, there were, there were fire tornadoes uh, over Black Summer. One of them, you know, picked up a fire truck and threw it on its roof. That's one of, one of the volunteer firefighters who, who was killed. So that, that was a weather system created by fire that picked up a I don't know how many ton fire truck and flipped it on its roof. Uh, so that's, you know, that's what we're dealing with. Um, and these th- kinds of things haven't happened before.
2: Now, and the other thing that comes through in the book a fair bit is this idea that the fire can stay in the ground or in the log for a long time. But when the flames go, the fire isn't necessarily out. And, fire out. and then you talk about a fire in winter down near the King's Highway. That's like pretty cold down there. And there's a, there's a fire and it just seems like, wow, this can, this is, um, there just must be so much to learn about how fire works.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the in the what, one part in the book I write in the like the year leading up to it, having experienced within the same hour of driving through a snowstorm, coming out of the snowy mountains, and then kind of cresting the mountains to come down to the south coast and coming into fire in the middle of winter. So, and that was a year before Black Summer. So, yeah, there is a lot. Yeah, there is a lot. And now, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a pretty crazy La Niña weather cycle at the moment with lots of um, rain and, and storms and, and hail. So we're not in a particularly bushfire-prone weather cycle, but, uh, yeah, a very wet, stormy one.
1: Hmm.
2: Well, thanks for making yourself available, Ronald. It's very kind of you. Thank you for the book as well. The book for everyone is... I hope I say it right. I'm sure that's wrong. Curruin. Curruin, the story of a fire and a community during Australia's worst summer. It has a, a great cover as well. You won't miss it in the bookstore. With the, well, the, the book's on fire. It just looks like it's on fire. Um, it's an amazing book. Very good story. Very Australian story. I recommend it. And Bronwyn, thank you once again for joining us on the New Books Network. To talk about your book.
3: Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Bede.
2: No, no trouble at all. Thank you. I'm Bede Haynes, and that is the end of this episode of Australian and New Zealand Studies.